Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is a name that all within Bloomberg 1200 know if they pay attention to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mr. Gavin uh, grew up in the venue north of the Charles River from Cambridge over to Revere and had a storied career in the FBI through Denver, Miami, and then in New York, including a tour of duty during the bombings of 1992. He's a former Federal Bureau of Investigation assistant director who darkened the door a few years ago at Boston College. David, why don't you bring in William Gavin? Yeah, William Gavin, great to have you with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Joining us on our phone lines, Bill, I've, I was rereading this morning the, the testimony that uh, James Comey is expected to give uh, today. And something I wondered about is the, the historical relationship between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the executive uh, branch. What's it been like? How much has that changed over the FBI's history? I think over the history, it's been basically the same uh, relationships uh, have been warmer with the White House and cooler with the White House. All depends. I think you can recall it uh, when Louis Free was uh, director. Uh, he gave up his badge to the White House during the last yeah. year. Uh, he was with Clinton and, and never went to the White House again. So there are there are, there are different kinds of relationships in terms of, but it basically extends the personality to the people involved in both sides of the house. Bill Gavin, I don't know if you've you've read the prepared testimony, but there's a moment after the first meeting between James Comey and the the president-elect at Trump Tower in New York. James Comey returns to an FBI vehicle and just begins to hammer out notes of what uh, happened therein. Tell us a bit about the culture of note-keeping and record-keeping within the FBI. James Comey pointing out that he had two meetings with uh, the previous president, Barack Obama, and did not feel compelled uh, to do this. Uh, How much does an FBI agent, an FBI director, journal what he does? David, it's not necessarily just the director. It's, it's, uh, it, I want to say it's all agents. It's all the assistant directors that run things. What happens is, you know, he didn't document, uh, as Jim Comey said, he didn't document anything with uh, um, Barack Obama, but he did uh, when he started uh, talking to um, uh, President Trump. Bottom line is, it's, it's, a, it's a mechanism that goes off inside your head. It's a little bell that says, I need to record this conversation. It's an uncomfortable feeling, perhaps, or it's a feeling that says, this is going someplace else, and I want to make sure I'm on the right side of recording this the way I remember it. And and many, many uh, agents and and, um, administrators in the Bureau do that kind of stuff. Mr. Gavin, uh, you remember, no doubt, John Bailey, also out of Massachusetts, who died in the line of fire for the FBI in Las Vegas over 20 years ago in 1990. Um, If you were to sit down with a president today and the way that he talks about law enforcement in a very simplistic way, I think we can all agree on that. What would you tell the president about the agents like John Bailey? Well, I I don't know as I can tell the president anything, Tom. You know, that's that's the, the nature of the beast. The bottom line is, though, 
I think the president does understand the significance and the importance of of a a competent, capable, ethical, independent law enforcement agency within the United States government. That that has to happen, not just within the United States government, but within the municipalities as well. They have to have all those qualities. And I think the president fairly well understands that. And, and, And knowing full well that there are Every one of the people that have sworn, the fine men and women of the FBI, would give their life for their country and for his life, too. So it's, uh, I, think, I think he understands that. Okay, well, let's, let's leave it there. Bill Gavin, thank you so much for your time today with Bloomberg Surveillance. Mr. Gavin is a former uh, assistant director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. David, this has been amazing. I, I, I can't say enough about the different, the many conversations we've had with FBI agents. Yeah, over these, these last few weeks. And, uh, and yeah. again, we're going to be looking ahead to some confirmation hearings for the, the man the president intends to nominate to Mr. head the FBI, Christopher yeah. Ray, formerly of, of King's Balding, who'd been at the DOJ for a long uh, and by all accounts distinguished career. will be following that. And of course, uh, that's going to take some focus here uh, after uh, the yeah. hearing today with, uh, with James Comey on Capitol Hill. What'd you learn last night in Washington? You were out and about. I mean, everybody's focused on this. I got in here late, but it's been interesting to hear everyone's perspective on what stands out the most from the from the, the written testimony that James Comey's going to yeah. read from today. A lot of people talking about remarks the president made about the cloud uh, hanging over the White House and how this investigation was preventing yeah. him, in his estimation, from doing what he he wanted to do. Seems like there's some consensus here that that's a, that's the major theme from from what yeah. we've read. A lot going on here. We thought we'd go finance on you right now. How strange, David Gura. No politics. No IR. John Tucker Pro- nodding in approval, Pro- I know. Praveen Kaurapati of Credit Suisse uh, with us now. On the Fed and what we know about inflation, first of all, why is the market so removed from the Fed about where inflation is? What do the what do derivatives tell you? Well, we have seen inflation break-evens uh, come off quite a bit since uh, the election, since immediately after the election. And uh, part of it is also in actual inflation readings have been softer than expected. Now, the Fed is insisting that this is temporary. They're willing to look through it. Yeah. Uh, it remains to be seen. I think markets have uh, bought the lowflation idea a little more uh, than the Fed has. Uh, we'll see who's right over the next couple of readings. The five-year, five-year break-evens, which is a pro phrase, folks, for looking out five years and then five years from there, is that a good indicator? Mm-hmm. It's, it seems a convenient indicator. Does it actually tell us what the market believes? Uh, in a way, it does. Uh, and certainly that's something the Fed looks at as well. Uh, the question is, are they right? Uh, well, oftentimes uh, they've moved a fair amount uh, with uh, really little new information. So sometimes it could be technical, but certainly it's something the markets look at, uh, and yeah. that's the best market gauge that you do have. In honor, David, of the complete focus on Washington today, I am going to do a five-year, five-year break-even <laughs> chart with a Fibonacci overlay oh, wow. <laughs> just to push against the Comey testimony. I'll be showing that Continue. to everyone here in our show. Yes, right? We're here with Praveen Kripati on Bloomberg Surveillance. Help us look ahead to the Fed meeting uh, next week. Uh, we're, we're anticipating we might get some more color on what the balance sheet unwind is going to be like. Do you think we're going to get any Anything more uh, on the inflation outlook or the balance of risks? Uh, I think uh, the balance of risk the Fed has moved uh, from, uh, you know, for a while now to a more balanced approach. And certainly, uh, I think the bigger concern that might come through is what's happening to inflation, yeah. right? Uh, I think uh, in terms of growth, they're comfortable with where uh, we are. 
So really the question is how they address inflation. To us, that's the more interesting point. Now, with regards to balance sheet, uh, uh, you might get a bit of uh, a bit more color, but the staff proposal that we saw in the last minute was very, very gradual. It's literally watching paint dry. <laughs> and so if you get uh, you know some indication that is, in fact, where the actual voting members are, uh, this may prove to be a much less uh, impactful mm-hmm. event. What do you use as you get closer to June 14th? Is, is there some mechanism? S- mecha- yeah, that's the right word, David. Thank you. Mechanism that you use to get a clearer picture within all the the media blather that we create every day? Uh, so to be clear, there's no uncertainty, at least from market's perspective, about whether there's going to be a June hike, right? That's yeah, price like 80-something percent. Yeah. It's like, yeah, almost certain, right? right? So the real question is what happens thereafter? What happens in September? Right now, September markets aren't really pricing much of a hike. Uh, and that's where the Fed's uh, thoughts on inflation will matter. Now, I will say September is, for different reasons, shaping up to be quite interesting. You have potentially the debt limit, uh, debt ceiling being raised, uh, you know, the uh, Mm -hmm. uh, budget uh, needs to be passed. So there are a bunch of things, and then potentially German elections and Italian elections. So that might give the Fed some pause. Uh, Markets are aware that there's this timing issue, so there's not much price in September at this point. Okay, we got to come back and do some more charts. I'm putting out this chart now for David Gurr to get him away from Fibonacci the Fibonacci overlay. Yes, Fibonacci. Very good, David. <laughs> Praveen Kurapati with us in charge of Fibonacci overlays at Credit Suisse. We'll continue our discussion. Wonderful research on really, really arcane finance and the dynamics of the derivative uh, market. We'll continue with the discussion on that. I want to bring in a little bit of fat tail thought here as well. It's a good time to have Praveen Kurapati with us uh, with Credit Suisse in derivative in fixed income and looking at what our central banks do. I'm going to call it a pretty careful synodal function. Euro spike higher, spike stronger, and then massive abrupt reversal to a weaker euro and now some stability. The headlines were actually pretty interesting. Mr. Draghi got out in front of his press conference with a set of headlines, didn't he, Praveen? Uh, Yes, he did. Uh, we were expecting, though, a bit more of a uh, removal of some of the uh, more dovish elements of their forward guidance. They did some. For example, they did drop the uh, lower uh, reference in terms of yeah. uh, the rates, but we also thought they would modify the well past uh, the end of asset purchases to just past. Right? It's, I know I'm shading words here. But oh, I'm shocked. Excuse me. We have a der- <laughs> Colin, we have a derivatives guy in the house and he's shading words. Okay, okay. Prote- protect the children. <clears throat> Continue. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, there's a bit of, uh, you know, reassessment of how quickly they may, uh, you know, pull back some of the stimulus. But largely it was in line with what we expected. Yeah, and we're right there right now. We're, you know, within yeah. pips of uh, where we were in line. If, if I look at the ECB... And with all the focus in Europe, obviously, how do I bring that over to June 14th mm-hmm. in Chair Yellen? Because she's got an inflation vector, which they've bought a full boat, and it's rolled over a little bit. They've got this rolling over, that rolling over, GDP, who knows? How does all this roll over to June 14th? So uh, the inflation problem that you mentioned is something the ECB has as well. Right? Yes. So uh, I think uh, the uh, the 
uh, stance lots of these central bankers are taking at this point is basically that we'll look through it for now. And I think uh, the Fed has telegraphed that they will do that in June 14th. Uh, beyond that remains to be seen. We just don't know. Yeah. yeah. Praveen, how big a, a deal is this? Uh, again, I look at the headline, they're admitting that guidance interest rates might be, be cut again. Uh, is, it, is it taking a big step, a small step here? Uh, help me understand just the, the gravity of the move that the, uh, the governing council's made. I would say it's a small step. Uh, it's something uh, that markets were largely expecting. And that's part of the reason is uh, several ECB speakers have been clear that they see in terms of the economy uh, that there's no longer any downside risk, right? So if that's your view of the economy, I think right. it's appropriate to be uh, removing that language. And now your geek moment for the morning, folks. Here's the headline. ECB drops reference yes. to lower rates in forward guidance. Right. When you and I studied derivatives, forward guides didn't exist. There were difference equations. Right. X post, X ante, T, T plus one, T plus two, and you struggled through first order and second order difference equations. Is forward guidance nothing more than a PR event? Is it nothing more than almost a marketing campaign by well-meaning economists? I would say it's more than a marketing campaign, particularly if you view the central bank as credible, right? And you can make the argument that both the Fed, uh, you know, post Walker and certainly the ECB have earned uh, some amount of credibility. Yes. So if they pre-commit to, say, keeping rates stable. Yeah, but they, they don't pre-commit. They change. If the facts change, I change. They do canes if things change. They do, but again, this is where credibility is important. I would say if there are small changes in the economic outlook, they probably stick to the forward guidance to be so as to be credible. Right. But if there are large changes, they will uh, make the change that you mentioned, and I think markets will sort of overlook that. Okay, let's go to Bullard's small paper, and, he, and, right. and, and Jim Bullard of St. Louis has sat on surveillance and said it is a small paper worth study. He wants a regime change where we wait and we don't worry about T plus one, T plus two, forward guidance, dots and the rest until we see a regime change. What's really going on in the last four weeks is disappointment that the regime change isn't regiming, is it? I mean, it's not happening. I, I think there's some of that. I think there's a concern that, uh, you know, maybe we aren't getting out of this lowflation world after all. So... Uh, uh, again, uh, I go back to my point that inflation prints over the next three months are key to watch. Uh, growth, uh, remember, has been pretty good. Uh, I mean, I, I should say good in the context of this recovery. Uh, so it's really what we're talking about is, uh, you know, uh, both we as market participants mm -hmm. and the Fed and the ECB watching inflation. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, David, I wanted to bring this up. The Atlanta GDP number uh -huh. is still very nice. It's a ginormous, like President Trump kind of 3.4% GDP. <laughs> You're getting the lingo down, But it's Tom. at the low end of the range. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I don't know Mr. Com Comey's going to comment on the Atlanta now GDP forecast, but even GDP is starting to roll over a little bit. I don't want to oversell that. We'll know a lot more about that in the next four weeks or so. See how I got Mr. Comey in there, even that was though pretty good. You we're know, talking yeah. Gaussian models. <laughs> Praveen, let me ask you about personnel and the Fed. Reporting this week that a uh, good friend of surveillance, Marvin Goodfriend, might be considered for a, a uh, post as a Fed governor, uh, yeah. perhaps. Uh, yeah. What do you make of that? What does that tell you about the, the direction of, of the Fed, the way that it's, uh, the, where it might be headed? Uh, no, that's very interesting uh, in terms of, uh, you know, developments for, uh, you know, the composition of the Fed. We have, in some sense, now all three uh, candidates for the vacant slots, right? Uh, now, if you make the assumption that, uh, 
Yellen might stay, which is uh, clearly a questionable assumption. But let's say that's the case. You're making that assumption? <laughs> uh, not right now. Okay. No, we're not. But uh, let's say uh, Trump had to pick one of these three uh, uh, gentlemen as the Fed chair. Now, it's good friend. We've uh, heard him on record say uh, he thinks the interest rate should be a lot higher. Uh, by lot higher, I mean closer to 2%, which means I think it will be a hawkish addition to the uh, well, uh, Fed. To David's brilliant question, way more brilliant than anything I'd come up with, is the idea of rules versus discretion. Mr. Goodfriend clearly tilts over to a more rules-based yeah, approach. Is that where, what we're really talking about here? Uh, well, yes, but we, we should also see what the rules are telling you, right? So the rules right now are telling you the rate should be higher. And so the net effect, if you try to gauge uh, what that might mean in terms of the policy rate, uh, it would argue for a higher rate. Now, I, I, it's not clear that he'll be able to carry the rest of the committee with him, but uh, certainly that's where he okay. appears to be. But th this is so important. The two-year yield, I did the chart yesterday. I'll send it out again, folks, on Twitter. The two-year yield less the inflation rate is still negative. Right. What happens if they raise rates in June and then one more time? Does the world end as we know it? Uh, no, that, that's, that's a great question. I think uh, we've had negative real rates at the front end for we a just while. Just go back to zero. Right. So we've had it for a while. Uh, I don't necessarily think uh, the... Uh, world ends, uh, I think there's some room. Uh, because remember, the Fed is still hiking at a very gradual pace. Now, if they were to accelerate, that might be a problem. Uh, we don't see that happening anytime soon. We think they will still be very measured. As I mentioned uh, a little earlier in the show, uh, September, for example, is not automatic, right, in terms of their mm -hmm. rate hike. This has been great. Don't be a stranger. Praveen Korpati with us uh, with Credit Suisse. Next time we'll do... Uh, uh, Poisson distributions and fat tails. <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated. The euro unched pretty much <laughs> off of the ECB news. No surprise there, really. Technical term, yeah. Unched is very important <laughs> technical term. But to give us really our first briefing on what we're observing in Washington uh, this morning, what a joy to speak to William Gavin, the former assistant director yes. of the FBI, so associated with Boston. And we say good morning, Bloomberg 1200. Uh, Boston and Cambridge and Revere, uh, where Mr. Gavin grew up and out of Boston College. Now we got to go to the Beltway, David, with our esteemed guest. Give us a briefing. Yeah, Terry Haynes with us here, senior political strategist at Evercore ISI, has been kind enough to join us a couple of times uh, this week here with us now in our Bloomberg 991 studios on what is a big day uh, in Washington, D.C. What are we going to get out of this? There's the pomp and the circumstance. There's the testimony, which we've seen uh, in advance. There's going to be some heated uh, questioning. Where do things go from here? How does this set the investigation uh, on track, on a different track? What do you think we're going to learn? Good morning, David. Good morning, Tom. And, and thanks again for having me. Uh, well, I think on, on track, you know, it's going to what you're going to see is an investigation that, that winds out over a period of months or even years. Uh, you've, you've had a special counsel appointed just within the past few weeks. Uh, uh, former Director Mueller, that special counsel is just setting up his own uh, his own shop, uh, taking briefings from 
FBI people and others on the status of the investigation. And, uh, and so they're probably at about the point now where they get started. Uh, and they'll wind through this. And, you know, as, as Comey's statement referenced yesterday, uh, you know, they'll do the best investigation they can uh, as quickly as they can. Uh, but that is not going to that, that's not going to go fast in market time. That's going to be a very slow uh, wind out event uh, without bombshells every day, unlike uh, mm. what we've seen over the past uh, month or so. Uh, you know, what we're going to learn today based on Comey's testimony is uh, is really not a lot new. Uh, the, you know, there's a lot of reference in the political press to, you know, cinematic uh, detail and the like. But fundamentally, uh, two things uh, come, out, come out of this written testimony. The first is that uh, Comey uh, confirms that uh, the president is not personally under investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second thing that comes out is really that there's no new detail at all. Uh, so uh, things remain somewhat ambiguous. And I don't say that as any sort of Trump supporter or derider. I mean, they just uh, the motivations here remain ambiguous. And, and uh, ultimately, that's up to uh, former director Mueller to try to figure out. So this is going to take a while. Tara, we were talking with Gina Martin Adams yesterday. She's our U.S. equity strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, talking with John Tucker, our friend and colleague as well, expressing a little bit of skepticism here about the market importance of what we're seeing here uh, today. What do you say to them? What do you say to clients about how uh, what will go on in the Hart Senate office building today, how that might matter to markets, if at all? Well, it matters if there's some sort of uh, bombshell beyond what we already know, uh, to the extent that, uh, that, that uh, you know, there, there's a shade or a cloud, as uh, the president apparently puts it, on the presidency. Uh, it matters if there's uh, something that comes out of the Comey testimony that is a significant negative beyond what we already know that he's going to say. If not... Uh, then it's not going to be much of a market event, and that that's probably yeah. the, uh, the that that's probably the the, yeah. the the lead dog here. To be clear here, Terry, and I haven't had this answered yet. Does Mr. Comey is he under an obligation to say everything he knows, or has he basically gone to Mr. Mueller and said, "What would you like me to say so I don't impede whatever you're doing as a public servant"? Which way does it cut? It's a very smart question, Tom, and not in the usual Washington sense of it's a smart question, therefore I'm about <laughs> yeah. to disagree with you. Uh, it's a very smart question. And the answer, the answer is both. Uh, he is under, under an obligation to say everything. Uh, but what I want to point out to uh, both David and to you and to listeners as well is that uh, he's not under obligation to say everything he knows in the open session. Yeah. Just, just like yesterday, uh, there, there were general statements made by Admiral Rogers, uh, DNI Coates, and others, and uh, uh, general statements about uh, how they felt uh, their interactions with the president went. Uh, but they did not feel comfortable testifying about the specifics in open session. Uh, I fully expect that they offered those more specific opinions in the closed session. And there will be a closed session here for Comey this afternoon as well. So. Well, what you're going to get is you're going to get generalities from Comey. You are going to yeah. get some more specifics uh, from the Intel Committee, who, you know, let's remember, are conduct is conducting their own investigation here as well. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder the degree to which this is distracting from what uh, Congress would like to be doing. In other words, this is this is going to create a lot of focus, uh, take a lot of focus away from tax reform or health care reform or uh, the debt ceiling or funding, all of that. How long is that going to continue? Is this a, a one-day event? You mentioned the, the long time horizon here we're, we're looking at for an investigation of, uh, of this nature. Uh, how worried are you about legislative agenda items being scuttled because of this? Well, I'm, 
I'm less worried than most people, uh-huh. and I'm I'm not sanguine about any of this. But I'm less worried about this than most people, but, uh, frankly, because as I say, uh, this investigation is in these investigations, I should say, both from uh, Mueller's side and from the con- congressional side, are going to go on for months or or even longer. There won't be bombshells every day. Uh, there won't be public statements every day or every week, for that matter. I would guess. And uh, and so what you're going to get is a return to normality more than anything else. To me, the the bigger concern for markets is not so much uh, juice going out of the Trump presidency or momentum from the White House side. It's it, it, mm-hmm. the, what needs what is happening right now, I think, is that Congress very much needs the Republican majorities in Congress, particularly on the Affordable Care Act and on tax reform, which are closely linked, as, as you both know. Uh, very much need to get their acts together right. and to uh, to actually figure out what the path forward is on that. If they uh, if they continue to dissipate and uh, uh, any momentum and bicker among themselves about uh, what the big items are and, and how and when they're going to achieve them, uh, that becomes a problem. And that has little to do with the Trump investigation, mm-hmm. frankly. That, need, that, the, the, that, that needs to be a, a moment right. where Republicans get to agree and move forward. I think most of our audience understands. David Gurr in Washington this morning. I'm in New York. David Gurr knowing a lot more about Washington than I do. He's drunk the Kool-Aid for years. <laughs> and Terry Haynes with us as well with uh, Ed Hyman's ISI Evercore. Terry, um, let me bring up a phrase which uh, David Gurr used this the other day. The president used it in the testimony. What's a satellite associate? <laughs> John Tucker, are you a satellite? Am I a satellite associate? You're I think satellite, a satellite is- that's spun out of control. Oh. <laughs> Sputnik. What's a satellite associate? <laughs> Tom, I I, I, I got to say, I think of you as one of the eight big planets rather than uh, oh, the, 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 <laughs> than something in the asteroid belt What's or a dwarf planet from Pluto. Okay. Uh, anyway. yeah, exactly. Tell, tell me, frankly, about satellite Mars. associates. I want Pluto to come back as a full planet. Yes, yes. Anyway, the uh, the satellite associate I think is anybody else. Uh, yeah. Very simply, uh, you know, I don't know who. Yeah, but but critically, they're treated differently. The president is the president, whether it's President Trump or President Garfield, or President Jefferson, a president has a different body of law, process, cadence, and discourse, right? Uh, to some extent, but I think, uh, the, you know, if, if we learned, you know, uh, we have to talk about Watergate at some point. I think it's required. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the Watergate uh, analogy is appropriate here because uh, what we learned uh, through Watergate uh, and subsequently through a variety of other uh, special counsel investigations over the past 40 years is that uh, the, uh, the body of law that applies to everybody else by and large applies to the president, too. David Gura in our Bloomberg 991 studios, Tom Keene at our headquarters in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We're here with Terry Haynes, the senior political strategist at Evercore uh, ISI. And Terry, I think after the president did that joint speech before a joint session of Congress, there was so much enthusiasm about what he said about infrastructure in this country. Yesterday, he was in Ohio, six miles uh, east of Cincinnati on the Ohio River. We saw the barges going by uh, behind him. And this was an opportunity for him to embrace what was supposed to be or what the White House wanted to be. Uh, infrastructure week. Instead, we had a 20-minute wind-up in which he talked about the Paris Accord, his trip to Saudi Arabia. He talked about health care. Uh, he finally got to infrastructure there at the end. But um, for something the White House engineered, wanted to be uh, the focus point this week, we really haven't gotten it. We haven't gotten details on infrastructure from the White House. Uh, I hate to draw the, the parallel here to t- tax reform, but uh, we're dealing with just a, a set of principles and little more. Yes. 
<laughs> I realized, I realized yeah. that wasn't a question, but no, no, I, no. I, I, I'm curious here just about we were talking about agenda. Uh, why hasn't the White House been better about claiming that or reclaiming that agenda? I'm not often surprised, but I am surprised by this. Uh, he had uh, the president has in Transportation Secretary Chow a a very skilled operator, not only on policy but on uh, but on the ability to bring political consensus. The infrastructure was one of the top things uh, that the president campaigned on. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm about it uh, among investors as well, and uh, and the general public also. And uh, and there were a lot of promises made. And uh, to be at a point uh, that's almost mid-year and to not have a plan, to not be engaging Congress on a bipartisan basis uh, and not moving forward uh, is a surprise. And it caused us uh, this week uh, to formally uh, downgrade uh, the chances of infrastructure legislation till, uh, till 2018. And that matters for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons it matters is because infrastructure, unlike a lot of other government programs, is not something where you merely splash out a bunch of money and all of a sudden things start to happen. Uh, that, that was shown very well in 2009 and 2010 uh, during, after the stimulus when lots of shovel-ready jobs uh, and, and projects were were promoted uh, and thought to occur, and it turns out a lot of that uh, didn't happen or happened very slowly. Uh, these spendouts happen over a period of two, three, five years. Mm-hmm. So, so the the delay here is is consequential in a policy in a practical sense, and uh, and dramatically slows. Uh, what the president said was going to be one of his uh, top priorities. Yeah, it was a freewheeling uh, speech, as I said. There was a moment where he brings up uh, Richard Lefrak. There's uh, the head of Renato, uh, Steve Roth there as well. He kind of brings them up for an off-the-cuff, a few off-the-cuff uh, remarks. What does it say that he didn't have surrounding this announcement or surrounding this week, sort of the panoply of business people we've seen uh, before? Is that an indication to you that uh, what happened with uh, the Paris Agreement, what happened with the G7 summit really has uh, changed or turned or uh, altered the way that business leaders, executives are, are interfacing or interacting with this administration? I think it's, uh, I think that there's some truth in that. I think it's also true, and this is by inference, but I think this is, it's also true that for whatever reason, the administration is not gathering up those folks and, uh, and, and trying to use them as a wedge for action. You know, one thing that Congress always looks for when it's looking for importance uh, is not just uh, importance and a priority in, in terms of what they should do and how quickly they should do it, is not just what the White House might want or, or you know, how, how the president's proposing something, but also what kind of uh, support it has out there in the real world uh, uh, from business leaders, from investors, uh, from the general public. And uh, so far, they have not uh, assembled that at all. And uh, it shows a lot of disarray on policy. Start with the standard idea of why infrastructure is such a struggle in Washington. It's just not in my backyard. Nobody wants the budget in their backyard, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it's partially that. Uh, But, you know, it's awfully bipartisan in many, many ways Uh, for 20, 30 years in my, my professional experience. Infrastructure policy, infrastructure legislation has always been bipartisan. The last time we had infrastructure legislation 
uh, most people don't know, uh, was just in December of 2015 uh, when there was a, a new five-year plan put into place that was largely subsistence, but, uh, but it was agreed to on a bipartisan basis. And what the president was talking about and what Mrs. Clinton was talking about during the campaign, for that matter, was a, was a ramp up from that level. Uh, and there are, and, and that includes both direct federal spending, which we think and continue to think there's about 300 billion yeah. available over three years, uh, but also an expansion of public-private partnerships, mm -hmm. all very bipartisan. Uh, there, there's a win, politically speaking, there's a win out there to be had. And uh, it, it is mildly surprising to me that the White House and the president uh, aren't seizing that opportunity. That's Terry Hans, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Senior political strategist at Evercore Eyesight joining yeah. me here uh, in our Bloomberg 991 studios uh, in Washington, Tom. Yeah, you're near Gucci Gulch, right? Yes, we Gucci, Gucci is across Gucci the street. I can, I can spy it here from our studio on the uh, the north the northeast corner of the building. Well, we've got a press conference coming up in six months. Uh, Matt Miller in Estonia, Tallinn, Estonia with Mr. Draghi, and then on to the Comey testimony. This is Bloomberg. Stay with us. I was watching Gabriel Euro Weekend off inflation talk. You can, folks, hear the cadence of the words and look at the Bloomberg and see things give way. There's a lot of uncertainty about inflation right now, isn't there, Gabriel? Um, yes, there is. Um, but I think that's partly because um, market participants want things to move steadily in one direction. If inflation is rising, you would like inflation to keep rising. If inflation is falling, you want it to fall. You don't want it to be on a, a vague but erratic upward trend, which, which is my view of where we are right now. And that is so in confusion, particularly at a time when central banks still are concerned that inflation may not be strong enough uh, for them. And, 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 and I can understand market uncertainty. I think it's poss possibly exaggerated. Gabriel, how, uh, how effectively uh, is this ECB, is Mario Draghi's ECB, being patient, confident, and persistent? Well, he certainly is being persistent. He certainly <laughs> projects confidence. Yes. How patient is he? Well, I would actually... Uh, look, the ECB has done well in the sense that inflation is headed towards targets. Uh, compare this where we were two or three years ago. Uh, compare money and credit growth with where we were two or three years ago. They've done very well. However, I'm not entirely sure how much of this is really the ECB is doing. As you know, I'm a monetarist. I look at money and credit data. Broad money started growing quite rapidly and started picking up in the euro area before the ECB started its assets per, asset purchases. So it may have been helped by it, but that deflation was no longer a threat. That was already clear three years ago. I think the ECB's policy is helping. I don't think it's doing any harm. Um, but it's also very clear, in spite of what Mr. Draghi says, that there is a lively debate inside the ECB where particularly the Germans are not happy with ultra-low interest rates and, well, and with what they perceive to be bailing out of foreigners. Yeah. I'm watching the screen here, folks, and there is some correlation going on on a weaker euro. Gabriel, we've got time for one final question this morning. As you mentioned, the Germans are watching this. 
I'm looking at a rollover in the German two-year to further negative low rates. Now, not the record lows that we saw in February, the last week of February, but the last week or 10 days or 14 days has been ugly for the German two-year to lower negative rates. How does the Bundesbank perceive that? It's a, uh, look, um, apart from being concerned, I think that they're, they're they're obviously worried about what it means in terms of what is it markets perceive that they don't perceive. The Bundesbank sees inflation is picking up, the economy is going great guns, we want higher interest rates. Why are markets incapable of taking that on board? If you'd asked me mm-hmm. two months ago or a month ago, I would have said it's political uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. That should no longer be the case. Uh, I think the Bundesbank is as confused as we are, but I also think the Bundesbank is happy with the ECB for all its dovish tone, having made at least one tiny little hawkish move. Right. No more late cuts. Well, Gabriel, we've got to cut it off there. Gabriel Stein with RGE, uh, Forecast RGE. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate you staying around. Schenker joining us in our studios in Washington, 99.1 FM uh, studios. He is head of all of government and politics today. He is supposed to be at a heart 216, but fell on the general's sword and gave it up for two corporals, a, a colonel and a, a couple first lieutenants who may not survive. Marty, if you, right. before we go to Greg Villiers, if you were at heart 216, what would you be listening for today? Well, you know, the key thing is, is there anything in in Comey's back pocket that he has withheld yeah. and is just waiting for the right question yeah. to provide it? Um, he has a history of doing <clears throat> that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Whether that'll happen today, that'll be the key thing. You know, th- if, is there anything new? Thank right. you so much, Marty, for joining us today. Let's dive into some questions. Joining us now, there is only one guest we can have right now. And as Gregory Vallier of Horizon Investments, what I love to do, Greg, in your morning note for Horizon is go in and find the one classic Vallier sentence. And there it is. Wild cards. Does anyone have anything on tape? Oh, you Watergate type you. I mean, that's the kind of bombshell. Can we really find out today if there's something on tape? Oh, John Dean? Well, I sort of agree with Marty. I think he made a very astute point. There could be a wild card here. Uh, In addition to tape, what about the leakers? Who were the leakers? What were their motives? Uh, What about these salacious sex tapes? Uh, What about uh, financial entanglements? There's a lot that could come up during Q&A. What does he do when these embarrassing questions or sensitive questions, I should say, are asked. Does he plead the fifth? Does he plead the seventh? What does he, you know, what's he do? Well, his silence would speak volumes, wouldn't it? Uh, If he refuses to answer a question about uh, Manafort or, you know, there's so many angles to the story. Uh, If Comey says, no, I can't go there, I think it'll just raise suspicions even more. Let me bring in my colleague in Washington with Greg Vallier. Here is Marty Schenker. Marty? Yeah, well, uh, among other things, uh, like Watergate, these hearings uh, uh, do tend to bring some of the senators themselves, the questioners, in focus. And if you, for those of us who remember the Watergate hearing, Sam Irvin uh, became basically a cultural star through his Mm -hmm. 
his his questioning uh, during the Watergate. Marty Vellier was too young. Oh, come on. <laughs> I wish. No, but I, I it'll wish. be interesting to see who kind of pops on that screen today. You know what I'm going to look for, guys, is the Republicans. We all pretty much know the Democrats will be scathing. But I thought it was interesting. Last night, Paul Ryan uh, was quite critical of Trump. He said it was inappropriate it was. For, uh, for Trump to ask Comey to stop the investigation of Flynn. So let's see if this starts a trend of yeah. Republicans who get critical. Let me paint the picture right now, Marty. Another question for Greg Villier. But first, looking at Heart 216 off our Bloomberg studio monitors here, for those of you radio worldwide and coast to coast, it is a ginormous uh, room. You could play a Predators-Penguin hockey game in it with about 100 photographers milling around waiting for the next image, the empty seat of Mr. Comey, and all the senators. None of them have sat yet. And above are the boxes David Gurra was talking about where the media uh, will look down behind Mr. Comey is, I'm making a joke, acres of people <laughs> like Marty Schenker ready to listen with every baby breath. Marty, Marty, a uh, question for Greg, please. But, Marty, really, all that's missing from the days of Senator Irvin and Senator Baker is the cigar smoke. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it is definitely riveting, this town. And I would say in most uh, businesses across America or anybody who's at home, they're going to be watching this. And... Uh, that has that has a lot of risks for this president, right? Because everybody will be turning on every word. And if in case there is a wild card that comes out, it's going to be through social media, just wildfire, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. And if I could add something, guys, political capital is so important in this town. There's a poll out this morning showing Trump's job approval rating down to 34 percent. If he gets under 30 this summer, his political capital will be such that a lot of Republicans will abandon him. Uh, yeah, and that has implications for policy, right? Yep, because he absolutely. has a lot of things on his plate uh, yep. in front of Congress. Now, here we are with Greg Villier and Marty Schenker waiting for uh, the testimony. It's a good uh, 24 minutes. Uh, wait, Greg, let me get in one more question here, if I could. I guess the president's going to tweet and make a response. How's the White House doing in organizing the president's day? Dan Balls, I thought, wrote a, a really terse column in the Washington Post last night of a president alone. What's the level of aloneness as we go well, to his testimony? We may find out, Tom, because... Uh, apparently, Trump's lawyers and his intimates, maybe including Ivanka, have told him, do not tweet today. If he tries to refute every point that Comey makes, that could be used against him down the road. So I think an awful lot of people close to him are saying, take our advice. So we'll find out. He's not known to take anybody's advice. I would be very surprised to see him tweet in real time, yeah. uh, Given the fact that, you know, our reporting is that his personal attorney is sitting there watching with him and his legal team. And it would seem to me the moment he raises his iPhone, they're going to say, put that down. Yep. Easier said than done. Right. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.